and we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. On today's morning show, we're going to be airing three different interviews with three different authors talking about newly published books. Here's part one. And for this portion of the morning show, I am deeply honored to be speaking with uh, one of America's most prolific and honored authors. His name is Martin W. Sandler. With over 70 books to his credit, uh, five Emmy Awards on his shelf, and the author most recently of a book that won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. It is called 1919, The Year That Changed America. And in this book, Martin Sandler looks back 100 years to an America, much like today, deeply divided, troubled in many, many respects, and yet on the brink of exciting possibilities, but so much fear and unrest in the air as well. Uh, it's a beautifully constructed book, and I'm very, very pleased to be able to speak with Martin Sandler about it for the next few minutes. Again, the book titled 1919, The Year That Changed America. Martin Sandler, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, thank you, and that's a wonderful summary. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I want to ask you, first of all, about uh, the, the interesting challenge of writing specifically uh, for young readers, and that's not what you exclusively do, but you do a lot of that, and you obviously do it extremely well. I wonder what well, goes through your mind as the author, as you are, for instance, choosing your words or structuring your books uh, when you want to be sure that you are connecting with young readers. What is most important to you? Well, that you know, thanks. That I, I'm going to tell you a quick story, if I may. You know, I I write about half my books for adults and half and half my books for young adults. And and when I go on book tours, I speak at night uh, to the to the adults. But during the day, I ask them to put me in the schools, and they always bring the whole school together. And they always ask me the same questions, and that is, you know, what's it like to write a book? What's it like to be famous? How old are you anyway? And and, and well, I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and this fourth grader, this small fourth grader, raises her hand. And I say, yes, dear, what's your question? She said, can you identify any recurring theme that runs throughout the body of your work? So, you know, I mean, I never write down kids. Kids are so much smarter than we think they are. They are so much perceptive. I, I, m most of my books for yellow, young adults sell for uh, sell as well for adults as well. You know, I the other thing that's happened in, in our recent lifetime is that I was told always, ah, kids really don't like to read. Kids don't read a lot. And along comes J.K. Rowling, and kids are skipping school, or they're not going out on the playgrounds, and they're not playing football because they're home reading a hundred and ten page book. So. Uh, I just, I don't see a heck of a lot of difference in my writing style for either because I just find that, that they, they're, they're perceptive and more perceptive than we think they are. Hmm. In a interview that you did, uh, I think for a Boston radio station that I had the pleasure of, of eavesdropping on, let's say, uh, <laughs> you, you, you talked, uh, at one point, uh, basically in the same sentence about going for the magic and being careful yeah. to be accurate. And I just thought that was yeah. really interesting that an author would be talking about, in a sense, <laughs> making magic and in the same breath talking about being sure you're accurate. <laughs> but I wonder if you well, could kind of talk about point. how I those... i tell you, you've you got to be accurate. I mean, you know, 
We're historians, you know. I mean, you have no idea how many times I'd love to embellish. You have no, I do it in my personal life all the time. Uh, you know, you make the story really fun. Make the story really magical. Make and and you know, we're we're historians and we're writing nonfiction. Uh, and but the other thing I have to tell you is you, what I've learned. I was really had that dilemma early on, but or at least I used to moan about it. I don't anymore because what I've discovered is that if it's written right, if it's researched right, nonfiction is a hell of a lot more interesting than fiction because it's true, and the true stories are even greater than anything. Now, sometimes when I've been digging out stuff in, in, in you know in libraries or on the net and so forth. And I'm looking at my colleagues who are writing fiction, and all they have to do is have their head and their pen and their paper. I envy them, but nah, it doesn't last because I, the stuff is out there, and there are incredible, incredible stories uh, to be told that are true that that make that fiction pales in comparison mm. to. Your book, but nineteen that's a good point you have because yeah. that's right. I'm going for the magic. I want to hold on to that audience. I want to. I want to make them enjoy. Reading. I mean, I'll tell you one of the one of the things that 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 just thrilled me so much, or I'm so appreciative of, in winning this National Book Award. It's the first time, to my knowledge, that a nonfiction book has won in that young people's literature category, and that these judges, for the first time, couldn't see that history can be not only uh, as important, but as exciting and interesting to kids as, as nonfiction. That, that, that's to their credit, and, 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 and I benefited from it, but it's to their credit, and I'm most appreciative of that. We're speaking with Martin Sandler about his newest book, which is called 1919, The Year That Changed America. Speaking of amazing stories, this book starts with an amazing story, and one that I would suspect most of us have never heard anything about. And maybe if one right. lives in uh, Boston and knows the history of that city, even then I'm right. not sure how many no, current didn't. Bostonians know about yeah. the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about this and why you wanted to start the book with this. Yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted to start the book with that because chronologically that's, it, it, it starts the year off. It's on January 15th, and it says, hey, Maybe this is going to be a kind of a special year, but it's interesting. When you first hear the story, you laugh. Then when you realize how many people died and that the entire uh, elevated railroad system was destroyed in the North End and two Boston firehouses floated or were crushed and sent into the sea, uh, then you realize that isn't funny. And very briefly, the story is that, you know, the, the, the war is about to come to an end, World War I. Prohibition is imminent. And so these, these alcohol companies realize, oh, my God, because believe it or not, um, molasses is a key ingredient in explosives, and, of course, it's the key ingredient in rum. And so they threw up this tank with no engineers to, 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 to supervise it, with no blueprints, with just a bunch of hack uh, contractors and, 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 and mechanical, or carpenter, whatever you call them, and they threw it up. It leaked from the beginning, and then when the weather changed dramatically one night and there was this amazing contraction, it exploded in a 45 foot wave, I know that's hard to believe, of molasses came roaring down the street and demolished uh, everything in front of it, including human life, so that, 
It's the great molasses flood of 1919. And it's known in Boston, a lot of myths have grown up about it, the biggest one being that today on a hot day in July, if you walk around the north end, you can still smell the molasses coming up through the cracks of the cobblestone streets. That's not true. But you don't need any myths because it's an extraordinary, extraordinary story. What, what's important about there are two things, but that's what's important about this book, I think. There's, there's two things about that. One, even from that story, there are important lessons were learned. For example, Boston and the United States didn't have one building code until that happened. Out of that comes the first building codes, the first laws that say if you're going to build up any kind of structure, you've got to have engineers, you've got to have blueprints, and the government has got to improve it, approve of it. That's a very important. That's a very important point, you know. Um, so that the other thing, as I did my research, and you know, when you're doing nonfiction, it's all about the research. When I was doing my research, I was startled to find that while people, um, <clears throat> while there were policemen and firemen and Red Cross workers digging through the rubble, trying desperately to find any survivors of this catastrophe. All of the church bells in Boston started ringing joyously. And so what was that all about? And what I discovered was is because on that very moment, uh, the last state needed to pass prohibition had passed it. And so they were ringing. The, the, the proponents of prohibition were celebrating. So it's all connected. I mean, the same guy, the, out of the prohibition comes, comes a whole new American character called the gangster, which I think that story, I think the most fun story in the whole book. But uh, out of it comes the American gangster. But it's the same guy, same exact people who fund the, the Black Sox scandal in which the White Sox throw the World Series later that year. So there, there are just connections throughout which make it very important. Right. I think it's really important to, uh, and particularly for young readers, but really for readers of any age, to understand just how much fear was in the air in 1919, mm. particularly uh, you. these, That's exactly yeah, right. especially yeah. these things called yeah, red quit, quit, quit. scares. Yeah, the, the, yeah, so much fear of communism, and 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 you trace yeah. a lot of this also to not so much a fear of communism. I mean, that was there, but but anti-immigrant prejudice that was yeah. really at yeah. the heart of so much of that. Yeah. How serious was this in 1919? Well, you couldn't have been more serious. It could not, you know, ultimately it leads to things like the Sacco Vanzetti when two innocent guys get get get, get executed. But it, what, what uh, there was, first of all, you have the Bolshevik Revolution just before this. And so now there are millions of people in America are convinced that the communists are now going to come over here and take over this government the way they took over Russia. And, of course, that all has to do with these immigrants. And the immigrants look different and smell different and dress different. And, and there's this whole incredible anti-immigrant, uh, uh, which it actually started years before when this first extraordinary wave of immigration began uh, in, like, 1912. But anyway, um it's a it's an enormous scare, and it's really it's really 
for those of us old enough to remember the McCarthy era, uh, it's it's a it's a, it's the precursor to the Joe McCarthy era. This guy Palmer, who was the uh, Attorney General of the United States, he starts conducting raids and throwing. You know, McCarthy was infamous for holding up a blank piece of paper that nobody knew it was blank, and said, I have on this sheet the names of 200 people in our government who are communists. You know, there was nothing on the paper. Uh, Palmer is arresting people uh, because, simply because they're immigrants. In fact, he's, a ra- he's, he's raiding immigrant halls and immigrant recreation facilities, throwing them in jail. He's actually deporting people. It's not a very nice period in American history for that score. Uh, and but again, I have to say that in the end, uh, he's he's found out. In the end, uh, in the end justice does prevail. But man, I mean, one of the things I say in the beginning of the book is that you, one, you have to understand that progress is never a straight line. We're going through some very hard times today. We'll come out of it. But, man, when you're living through it, it doesn't seem it will happen, and it sure as hell doesn't, even though you can, a historian like me can pontificate and say, don't worry, progress is never a straight line. Try living through it and being happy about it. It's right. Hard. One of the things you say is that for all of the terrible things that occur in 1919, one also has a sense that ultimately good came from them. You've already touched on that with the great molasses flood. And I'm thinking, too, of some of the ways in which some of the terrible incidents of, of, of racial violence, of, of, right. of violence done against uh, blacks, in some ways was the seed for the civil rights movement, which, of course, would ultimately not take off until decades later. But, I mean, the seed was well, planted. that's absolutely right. That's a- yeah, good, very good observation. Exactly, and the NACCP and NACCP is born, and and in Washington there were three main bedrocks of all of all these terrible incidents. One, one was in Chicago, one was in Washington D.C., and one was in uh, Arkansas. But uh, in Washington, it's the first time that African Americans band together and start fighting back physically. So it's the first time you start to get organized opposition to the, we're not going to lie down, we're not going to take it anymore. Uh, so you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a very, and it's true, yeah, there's a lot to celebrate in that period, I mean, in, in this era. Uh, and, um, you know, even with the Black Sox scandal, I mean, <laughs> those of us who love sports and, and read about how, how someone, how a team could throw the World Series, but out of it, comes the first sanctions and the first laws, and it ain't going to happen again. Mm. We also, of course, point with pride to the fact that 1919 is finally when women are on the brink of finally receiving the vote. What do you think is most important for both men and women in 2019 to understand about that long struggle and that uh, struggle finally succeeding? Well, what, what I came up with, what, what my research showed and what I wrote about, was that after decades and decades and decades of this fighting, it was the abuse women took when they finally got organized that finally turned the tide. I mean, most of the country did not know what was going on. I mean, first of all, the prejudices were absolutely amazing. I mean, it was absolutely commonly believed by men that women were so frail in mind and body that if they were given the vote, 
they would go into the ballot box and start to make a decision and be so overwhelmed they'd faint right in the ballot box. (laughs) Uh, Now, the interesting thing that most people don't know about uh, is that in the Western Territories of Colorado and Wyoming, uh, women had the vote. Women had gotten the vote decades before this. And why? Because they're out in the fields working side by side with the men. The men need them. And also the men are physically observing that women are every bit as strong and probably a little smarter than the men. So that, But now nationwide, uh, there's still this thing. But what happens is women finally... And there are a couple of incredible leaders, particularly a woman named Alice Paul, who is, I think, a very much neglected heroine in this country. Uh, we hear about Katie Stanton, and we hear about, uh, about a lot of people. We don't hear a lot about Alice Paul. She's the hero. And, and she organizes the first Great March. And what happens? Uh, the Great March in Washington, men attack the marchers, and they beat them up. And the police come, and they arrest the women. And they put them in jail, and so the women go on hunger strikes. And, and suddenly the newspapers pick it up, and they understand that women are starving, and women are being force-fed through their nostrils. I mean, they're being abused. And then there are other strikes, and again, women are thrown in jail, and again they do that. And it's finally when the rest of the country starts seeing the abuse women are willing to take in order to get what they know is their right, uh, that it turns around and and um, and they get the vote and you know if you, you ask what's the most Im- it's very hard to pick out what's the most important thing it probably if you had to vote I would say that's probably more, but you know you look at prohibition and you look at all these other things that happen and you you look at I mean uh, you look at the fact that there were more more labor strikes again having to do with, with anti-immigration. Uh, policies, but there were more labor strikes in 1919 than has ever occurred in the United States. And out of it, out of it comes the president of the United States. I mean, there's some cool stuff going on. I mean, the Boston police strike takes place. It's the first time that that a government agency, uh, workers of a government agency, have struck against the government. And you've got a, a governor of Massachusetts named Calvin Coolidge who, who who deals with the problem by running away. He doesn't want to touch it. And But before he runs, he makes one statement. He says, there's never any right for anyone to strike against the government at any time. And it becomes a catchword for all those around the country, and it makes him president of the United States. I mean... You couldn't make up a lot of these things that happened in this <laughs> right. year. And, of course, you, and you tell us that this is a, 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 a year full of incredible events, and they're all hooked together. They're each linked. They yep. each affect the other. You say what may have looked like separate events were all evidence of seismic and systemic social change. The book, again, is 1919, yep. The Year That Changed America. It's published by Bloomsbury, and it's award-winning author Martin Sandler. Martin Sandler, you've done it again with a marvelous book, and I'm really <laughs> glad we got to talk about it today on The Morning Show. Thank you so much, and well, best wishes. I am, too, and thanks so much for having me. You're listening to The Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today's program is devoted to three different author interviews talking about newly published books. Here is part two. And I am delighted and honored to be reconnecting with one of the world's 
most successful authors, David Baldacci. Uh, he is prolific and incredibly successful, and his uh, books are popular not only here but uh, throughout the world. And uh, we're going to be talking about his most recent book and also about uh, a nonprofit that he has co-founded with his wife called Wish You Well. Um his latest book is called A Minute to Midnight. And David Baldacci, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Oh, great. Thank you. It's great to be back. Could you have ever imagined in your wildest dreams when you set on this uh, career as, as an author that you were going to enjoy the kind of success that you have? Uh, yeah, I started out as a short story writer, and I did that for over a decade. I was the, the, My greatest ambition was to have a short story published in Playboy magazine, <laughs> which... <laughs> published a lot of great short fiction back then, you know, but I wasn't, you know, Joyce Carol Oates or Tony Morrison or John Updike, so I really had no shot at that. But So the, the success has exceeded my wildest expectations and dreams, certainly. And it seems like it is still a very fresh venture for you. I mean, there's nothing tired about this latest book. It seems like uh, uh, writing gives you all the pleasure that it did even at the outset. I, I completely agree with you. It does. I feel like my energy level it grows with each book. My interest and uh, focus grows with each book. I've, I've never treated it as a job. I think if, if you do, then you're just working towards retirement, and that's not a good thing for a creative person. I wake up every day, and I think about what I want to write about with kind of this, you know, joy. And uh, imagining my life not writing would be a nightmare for me. And Every book that I sit down to write, it's almost like my first novel, where I'm scared. I don't know if I can bring the magic. I don't know if I'm any good. I don't know if I know what I'm doing. Um, but those are all good things for a writer. They give you an edge over, over other people who are just kind of like trying to phone it in because they're tired of doing what they're doing. And I think that's a difference for me. Hmm. Uh, in your latest book, A Minute to Midnight, you are uh, back with uh, the uh, intriguing character of FBI agent Atlee Pine, uh, who, if I don't, if I remember correctly, was your first female lead character. What was it like at the time that you first wrote a book with her at the center of it? Did that feel like a drastic step in a new direction for you, or in any way was it uh, a challenge that you had not experienced uh, in any of your previous books? It, it really was both of those things. I think it was sort of a, very much a challenge and very much a drastic step. I'd had lots of female characters in my other novels. If uh, Usually they were paired with a man, King and Maxwell, or uh, Will Roby and Jessica Reel, and, um, or, or Amos Decker and Alex Jameson. But this, this series is carried on the very broad shoulders of Atlee Pine. She has an assistant who works with her, Carol Blum, uh, who is of a different generation. She's in her 60s. I like that dynamic between the mm. two. It's almost like mother-daughter. But, you know, one of the way, you know, reasons I picked the subject matters to write about and the characters I write about her is to challenge me, is to get me out of my comfort zone, to sort of shake me up and force me to do something different. And Pine certainly did. I mean, to think throughout the novel from the perspective of a gender of which I do not happen to be, uh, but luckily, I, I grew up surrounded by strong, independent women. I had about, you know, I'm from a, an Italian family. I've got like, you know, 30 aunts. <laughs> and um, I, my mother was a very strong, influential person in my life. My sister, the same. I'm married to an incredibly strong, independent woman. We raised a daughter who is that, very much that as well. So I felt like I had a good grounding in the sort of character that I wanted to create and, you know, how women sort of approach things to the extent that any man can. And But yeah, it was a challenge. It, it, was, it was tough, but it was really rewarding, too. 
One of the uh, central premises of this latest book, A Minute to Midnight, is that you are taking FBI agent Atlee Pine uh, back to her hometown in rural Georgia. Uh, tell us what you found intriguing about that kind of setting, that kind of backdrop for a thriller. Well, it was really, it was very atmospheric, and it was almost like you're stepping back into the 1970s again, and then stepping even further back into the 1860s. Andersonville, Georgia, it's a small town, population around 250, and it's m- mostly known uh, for the very notorious Confederate prison that sits right next to the town, Andersonville Prison, where about 14,000 Union soldiers perished over the course of a year from starvation and disease. Um, and that prison is, is still there, remnants of it. They have a big Civil War presence. They have reenactments every year. So it was almost like stepping back into time. And for Pine, it was stepping back into the 1980s, where she lived there with her family and her twin sister, Mercy. Uh, and the night that Mercy was abducted and Pine was almost killed really starts this whole journey for her uh, that's lasted over 30 years now, what happened to Mercy Pine. And that's why the first book was entitled Long Road to Mercy, because this is not going to be a short drive for her. This is going to be a long, long journey to find out what happened to her twin. Hmm. Do you anticipate that you're going to be writing more books with Atlee Pine at the center? Yes, absolutely. I left a lot of things unresolved in A Minute to Midnight. Cause I, I wondered about to. that. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I mean, the book is o- over 400 pages long, and I still didn't resolve all the, all the questions. So she will be back. I mean, at some point, she's going to have to find out not only what happened to her sister, but after you read this book, find out who she really is and who her parents are. Lots of other questions cropped up in the course of this book. And then after that, once that resolved, I really would love to see Adley keep coming back with Carol as she moves forward in her career as an FBI investigator, because there's lots of interesting things she can do uh, with respect to that. Absolutely. And I appreciate the fact that uh, you kind of shake readers loose from maybe previous notions that they might have about how life in small towns is sleepy and uneventful and predictable. There is nothing sleepy or predictable about this town or its history. No, not at all. You know, Agatha Christie had Jane Marple, a little little English village, probably smaller than Andersonville, and she knew all about every aspect of life by observing the people who lived in that town. I've never forgotten that. And Andersonville, Georgia, has a lot of interesting people, a lot of interesting characters, and you will not be bored. (laughs) Before I let you go, I would really like to hear something about the Wish You Well Foundation, which you... uh, Uh, co-founded with your wife. Uh, Tell us about the mission of the Wish You Well Foundation. Our core mission is to eradicate illiteracy, and to that regard, we we are, uh, receive about 5,000 grant requests a year from organizations all across the country, literacy organizations, libraries, public school systems who need funding for books and reading programs. We fund as many as we can. We poured millions of dollars into this. Um, our, our mission is to make sure that every person can read in America at an acceptable level. Reading is the most fundamental skill you will ever have because it equates with the ability to think. If you can't read, I don't think you can think at any great level or any great depth. And to be a full participant in a democracy, you need to be able to do that, to realize your full potential as a person, particularly in an information age like we live in now. You need to be able to do that. So we're trying to lift everyone up who doesn't have that ability and empower them to realize their full potential. 
And uh, we want to remind people once again that uh, A Minute to Midnight has just been published by Grand Central Publishing. Uh, yet another thriller from the pen of David Baldacci. David Baldacci, great to catch up with you. Best wishes to you with all the writing that stretches ahead for you. And thanks for being part of the morning show today. Uh, thank you. I always enjoy it. You're listening to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today we are listening to three different author interviews about newly published books. And here is part three. And for the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be talking about a very intriguing work of uh, historical fiction, which has just been published called The Countess Choir Woman uh, by Eleanor Cripps. This is an uh, interesting story set in the uh, 18th century, and uh, it plays out against a backdrop that uh, most of us do not understand. But uh, it is a backdrop that is uh, known to some extent uh, to our morning show guest, the author of this book, Eleanor Cripps. Uh, she was born in Vienna, Austria, and uh, educated uh, in a region very close to where this story uh, unfolds. And uh, she has done an extensive amount of research into this period and what it was like for a woman to live uh, in an abbey in 18th century uh, Austria. And uh, we will be speaking with her about this book, which again is called The Countess Choir Woman. Eleanor Cripps, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. I'm so happy to be on your show. So tell us, first of all, uh, a little bit about your own personal connection in terms of your background to the region where the story of the Countess Choir Woman unfolds. Well, I was, uh, as you mentioned, educated in a small town in Leoben, which is in central Austria, in the province of Styria. And during a class reunion, we toured the nearby location of the former Abbey of Gers where I acquired a booklet which dedicates just a couple of pages to one particular choir woman's story that has remained unique in the Abbey's 800-year history. And her unusual life not only impressed but touched me, and I began to research her story. So the story of this work of historical fiction is very closely based on this one woman's really unusual life. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, that's correct. And while there was relatively little available uh, about her background, except her background and uh, her family and uh, where she grew up and uh, truly what happened to her at the Abbey, I was very grateful to my dear friend from high school, Ruth, who was able to uh, to acquire a publications from uh, the Bavarian Benedictine Academy uh, that gave me, literally gave me uh, all the historic data, the some of the background of all the major characters in the book, <laughs> including bishops and clerics and even excerpts from uh, certain sermons that the bishop, one of the other bishop, held at the Abbey. Give our listeners some sense of sort of the turbulence of this period in general in this region and of the kind of sanctuary that, uh, that a, a given abbey might at least hopefully provide for the women living there. 
Well, she ended a contemplative order. Now, a contemplative religious order, Catholic religious order, leads a life of prayer and adoration. They're usually confined, that means cloistered, and do not perform charity work. And in addition to that, why choir woman, um, an 8th century bishop had laid down precise rules uh, for up to seven sung services during each 24 hours. When they became Benedictines, they were referred to as choir women. I mention this because this was the type of abbey she entered. She, she and her four teenage siblings became the wards of a Catholic uh, cardinal in Vienna. And eventually all four, two boys and two girls, joined religious orders. The youngest one, Tessa, my heroine, uh, was extremely talented, musically talented, and especially singing. singing. And that's why she was sent to the Abbey of Gers that was, uh, that was an abbey of choir women and, uh, of course, uh, cloistered behind uh, abbey walls. Hmm. And, of course, one of the uh, main tenets of your story is the fact that uh, that your heroine, Tessa, uh, although she is very gifted musically, and so in that respect, uh, folds nicely into this life. There are things about her, and particularly about her personality and values, which make it, in some ways at least, an uncomfortable fit. Uh, tell our listeners more about that. Well, she had grown up in complete freedom with few restrictions. And after only a year in Vienna, which she totally disliked because she grew up on a country estate, so when she was told that the abbey was uh, located uh, between mountains and mountains and, and uh, a, a private location, she was very happy. And originally, she was so delighted that she could further and have her, her great musical talent train both her voice and to learn an instrument. And she even, she's still a teenager when she uh, does her final vows and becomes a choir woman, Maria Columba, as it was, of course, the custom since the Baroque time when uh, a woman joined or a man joined an order, they were given a new name and always preceded in curse by Maria. But over the years, uh, she's very frustrated because of the cliques and being a convert from Protestantism. She was raised originally a Protestant. She was looked down upon, and she also, her big, biggest problem was that she had a temper. And she was often provoked by uh, other choir women who resented her and didn't always behave um, in ways that were tolerated among choir women. One of the things you tell us is uh, about kind of the, the, the daily life of these choir women and that for all of the singing that was a part of that life, that there were, uh, that there were other tasks to which they, uh, they devoted themselves and their time and talents, including uh, things like uh, creating an, an incredible uh, handicraft uh, sometimes of, of absolutely exquisite beauty. Tell us more about this. They were indeed. They created antipendants, which is altar clothes, and they uh, embroidered clothes for the statues of saints. 
incredibly beautifully embroidered. They are like uh, gobelins. They are like uh, tapestries uh, in great detail. Unfortunately, when after the abbey was dissolved, very little of that is still available, especially one that was done mostly by one of the abbesses is in the museum in Leoben, and it is just uh, miraculously beautiful. Uh, they also uh, wrote books, uh, I mean, copied books. They were very talented in what little time. They have actually no more than about two hours every day that they could, in between their many services, spend and devote to um, their handicrafts. Right. And, of course, your book also takes up the, the matter of the time not only spent actually in these worship services, but all the time it took to be properly prepared for them. Uh, give our listeners some sense of the arduous musical challenges uh, that were posed to these women, these choir women. Well, that they started at midnight with midnight mass, which was a full hour, completely sung in Latin, of course. All their singing was in Latin. Uh, which meant that uh, before they could become a choir woman, they had to be very fluent in Latin. Uh, after this hour, followed, they followed a long litany, and by 5 o'clock, the bell was rung again, and they had to get up to um, prepare for the day, uh, examine their conscience, which they did morning and evening, and then there was the next service, followed by another litany uh, and uh, thank you prayers for all those who had uh, uh, donated money to the Abbey. Also, the Abbey was really quite wealthy from the dowries that uh, each nun had to bring upon entry. And uh, this went on with a, with a high mass at uh, 9 o'clock. At 10 o'clock, they had their first meal of the day. There were no breakfast. They had two meals, one at 10 in the morning and one at 5 in the afternoon. And these meals were very substantial. I mean, they did, they did not starve. They were well-fed, but it was still difficult. And they had free recreation. And then there was the non and the next service. And one after, the last one was at 5.30. And then finally they were free until, or I mean, they were, had a rest until midnight. Of course, needless to say, the bell rang before midnight because they had to be up and fully dressed and ready to sing. Mm. <laughs> One interesting point, which you make more than once in the book, so I think it is something you want to make sure that we understand, is that uh, there would be certain orders in which uh, one of the prevailing rules would be a strict vowel of, of, of poverty. And this was apparently something that did not exactly apply uh, to this, uh, to this it particular... It did not. They, they were, yes. The Benedictine rule is ora et labora, which means pray and work. It did apply to the many so-called lay nuns, who were also really Benedictine nuns, but who were really, they came from the, from the surrounding area, mostly from the countryside, many of them, most of them illiterate, uh, and, uh, of course, they sang in German, but they did not sing together with the choir women. The choir women were behind the screen, and uh, these services were strictly for them, except mass, of course. Um, they uh, could not really do much manual work because they were, 
their singing of many hours every day is very exhausting, as any professional singer will tell you, especially in the wintertime. Churches were not heated. The church was not heated. It was bitterly cold, uh, sometimes below, below freezing. And uh, at times they weren't even allowed to wear gloves. And, but they still had to do their singing. Uh, many times, of course, some of them were sick. And, uh, but uh, those who could faithfully went up and performed the services. Hmm. <laughs> and one little small detail that uh, I found really interesting that had not really ever occurred to me, but you, you tell us that one of the frustrations of, of uh, young Tessa, particularly uh, early on, was that uh, that some of the choir women actually had relatively limited talent compared to the talent that she had. And, of course, part of what can be frustrating about being part of any kind of a choir is sometimes when one ends up next to somebody who does not sing at the same level that you do. And, and of course, it's just interesting to think so often we look back at history and with kind of rose-colored glasses and don't stop to think about how, yes, even even back then, you would have people of varying abilities and people experienced frustration just as they would today under similar circumstances. And that's the case with Tessa. Of course, and that bitterly frustrated her, and she was not forgiven when she criticized that. <laughs> so she was often criticized for her for her faults by others, but um, that she was not forgiven for criticizing her. Uh, her uh, fellow nuns, uh, who really, many of them couldn't sing, and we all know, uh, and it is well known, how very musical people find it terrible to, um, I often think about, uh, I learned the piano, and I often think how difficult it must be for a piano teacher to uh, handle (laughs) pupils without talent. (laughs) So I should think one of the reasons you were intrigued to fashion an entire book from this setting and period uh, is because it gives you the opportunity to examine what it was like to be a woman in that time and place, both within and outside of the walls of, of, of for instance, this beautiful abbey. Uh, tell us what you came to understand about that uh, through your research that maybe you had not really understood before? Well, she was an 18th century woman, just 12 years old, when she and her three teenage uh, siblings had to leave house and home and family in the mountains of Transylvania, which is now part of Romania, by the way, uh, to live in the house of a Catholic cardinal whose ward they had become. Uh, it is Many people have told me, why would someone want to read about an 18th century nun? Well, I believe what makes her story rather timeless and uh, appealing, at least to me, was her will to adjust to, uh, to the demands of her unusual life. And she always displayed dignity, courage, and also compassion for her fellow nuns, even, even those such as her abbess who um, could have probably done more for her, uh, the abbess Enrica, than she did. I think that's a rather timeless story because we all have to adjust to life, and uh, very few of us 
uh, live a life as uh, that we anticipated when we were teenagers, hmm. even younger. And uh, that is certainly the case with this woman who, uh, among other things, for a time finds herself unjustly imprisoned. And, uh, and part of the story uh, is of finding a way to uh, endure that kind of terrible difficulty. And this is also reflected in the, the actual life of this woman, Uh, yes, she. Uh, yes, some of her good friends among the nuns do visit her, and they visit her as often as, uh, as they're actually allowed to, because uh, what gets her into trouble, and it was her temperament, uh, it leads to a dramatic scene when she seeks to preserve the Gothic chapel's medieval frescoes uh, that she considers irreplaceable. And she's judged by her peers, especially the prioress, who is second to the abbess and, uh, and really uh, in charge of the, of the final verdict. She considers the pronounced punishment totally unjust and degrading. If she had submitted to that punishment, uh, she would not have been what we call imprisoned, but was uh, called really confinement to the... Uh, Camera correccionis, which means correction chamber, but it was a virtual prison cell. And throughout the five years, she's frequently asked, if you submit to the punishment, you will be freed and be a, a regular uh, choir woman again. And she always refused that. Hmm. A brave woman, a gifted woman, and her story told in this book called The Countess Choir Woman and the author Eleanor Cripps. That last name is spelled C R I. P.P.S. Eleanor Cripps, the author of The Countess Choir Woman. Eleanor Cripps, thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on your show.